Hello and welcome everybody. It's great to see so many of you here in the old theatre this evening. My name is Elizabeth Hunter and I'm the director of Theos, which is the think tank which is uh, co-sponsoring this event. It's organised in partnership with the LSE Forum on Religion and that was established here at the LSE in 2008 to provide a space for public engagement with a range of themes, I'm so sorry, with a range of themes related to religion in contemporary society. We're just really grateful there's a, um, a few members of the forum here and we really appreciate your partnership with tonight's event. Theos is a think tank which some of you may not have heard of. We undertake research and provide commentary and we organise events around the subject of religion in contemporary society. We were established in 2006 to speak into a very similar area to the Forum on Religion. What do we do with religion in society, in our modern society? What do we do with our increasingly plural identities? We come from the perspective that Christianity in particular and religion in general has a really active role to play in public life. And this is not simply for defensive reasons because we live in a liberal society and everyone has a right to their say. It's because we believe that it's got a genuinely positive contribution to make for the common good. We believe that faith cannot be private, but that it should not be privileged either. They've got a selection of our other reports on the table as you go out. Um, and you can, of course, find out more about us on our website. Tonight's debate is, of course, about multiculturalism. And it uses as its launch pad the latest Theos report, Multiculturalism, a Christian Retrieval. Now, I want to apologise for those of you who didn't get a copy of this. Um, it is available as a PDF from the website. And if you'd like to write to us, we're happy to pop a copy in the post for you. I just want to say a quick word of thanks to its author, Jonathan Chaplin, who is with us tonight for um, the incredibly carefully researched and, uh, and wonderfully argued report that he's produced for us. Now, the issue that we're talking about, multiculturalism, has been knocked off the top of the agenda by, among other things, the economy, political witch hunts, and the fall of certain dictators. But it is a very live and very vital issue. It's also a complex one where the terminology is very slippery, as we'll hear later. It's about identity and values, how we see ourselves and how we see others. What story are we telling ourselves about what a good society is, what a good life is, and how do we deal with our very deep differences? As the nation's most culturally diverse religious community, we believe that Christian political thought has a very valuable contribution to make to these ongoing discussions. Two very brief notices. Jenny Taylor, one of our advertised panellists, has had to withdraw through ill health. And we're very grateful to Alan Craig for stepping in. Um, got a very early phone call from me this morning. Um, and we're really glad that he can join us tonight. He will have to slip away just a few minutes before the end. So when he sort of disappears off down there, don't worry. He's just got to go to another engagement. Uh, the hashtag for this event is LSEFOR for Forum on Religion, if you'd like to follow on Twitter. And we'd love to take part in those conversations, and uh, I know that the LSE Public Events Programme has a, a much broader audience, so do tell them what's going on in the room, and we'll interact with that as well. I'm going to really briefly introduce the panellists. We have Dr. Jonathan Chaplin, who's the director of the Kirby Lang Institute for Christian Ethics in, in Cambridge, and he's an expert in Christian political thought. We also have Professor Tariq Madud, um, Tariq Modud, forgive me, um, who is the Director for the Centre for the Study of Ethnicity and Citizenship at the University of Bristol. In the red coat, we have Claire Fox, who is the Director of the Institute of Ideas and a regular panellist on the BBC Moral Maze programme. And on the far side, Alan Craig, who's the leader of the Christian People's Alliance and until 2010, a councillor in Newham. 
I'll just hand over to Jane Little, who's going to chair our discussion tonight. Jane is a writer and a broadcaster. She sits regularly in the chair of um, Woman's Hour, Sunday, Last Word, and The World Tonight. And actually, she's going to be presenting Last Word tomorrow, I believe, um, which is slightly inconvenient because there's been rather a high-profile death today. <laughs> um, so her schedule's just got a lot busier for today and tomorrow. She also notably created the role of religious affairs correspondent at the World Service in 1997. She's reported on religion and politics from all over the world. So we're very privileged to have her with us tonight. I'm going to hand over to her. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. Well, there are many people who've pronounced the death of multiculturalism, not least our Prime Minister David Cameron, and he and German Chancellor Angela Merkel have both called it a failure. And we've seen the banning of burkas in France and Belgium, and the banning of minarets in Switzerland, uh, which have coincided with the rise of far-right parties that have basically risen uh, on a platform of anti-immigration, anti-multiculturalism. Uh, meanwhile, it's been attacked from the left as a breeding segregation, undermining enlightenment values and providing fertile ground for uh, Islamist extremism. Uh, so it's a brave man who would defend it. Uh, let me hand over now to Jonathan Chaplin, who is about to do just that and tell us why there is a future for multiculturalism. Uh, well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Jane, and thanks also to both Theos and the LSE Forum on Religion for organizing this uh, very timely, continually important uh, discussion about multiculturalism, and also for the opportunity to kickstart tonight's discussion by sharing with you just some of the conclusions of the document that you have in your hands. Well, just to begin with, um, an, ob an observation on the state of the current debate about multiculturalism in the UK. The last decade has witnessed a radical shift of public and elite opinion about multiculturalism. Just compare two representative moments. In 2000, the Runnymede Trust published a highly influential and, as it turned out, highly controversial report, The Future of Multi-Ethnic Britain, which concluded with a call to officially declare the UK a multicultural society. Fast forward to February 2011 when David Cameron made a speech to the Munich Security Conference in which he declared that, quote, the doctrine of state multiculturalism has encouraged different cultures to live separate lives apart from each other and apart from the mainstream. We fail to provide a vision of society to which they feel they want to belong. Well, Cameron wasn't simply stating Conservative Party policy on multiculturalism. In fact, he was only putting in rather starker terms what Labour ministers had in effect been saying for most of the last decade, and which has found support from commentators right across the political spectrum. One of those commentators, as some of you will know, was the chair of the then Commission for Racial Equality, Trevor Phillips, himself a black Briton, who in 2005 claimed that as a result of multiculturalism, Britain was, quote, sleepwalking into segregation. Even Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, leader of the oldest religious minority in Britain, said in 2009 that multiculturalism has run its course and it's time to move on. Now, I think those are pretty representative voices in the UK today. So, in spite of important countervailing voices, uh, among them actually Tariq Modud, I think it's fair to say that conventional wisdom today is that multiculturalism is an idea whose time has gone. 
and that goals such as national values, national narratives, integration and social cohesion must now be the overriding priorities of public policy towards minorities. Well, my Theos report is a critical response to these developments and to these claims. And I think I can best summarize its arguments in the four and a half minutes I've got left by just saying a little bit about each of the key words in the title. First, what is multiculturalism? Second, why a retrieval? And thirdly, why a Christian retrieval? So first, what is multiculturalism? We're going to return to this in the debate, I know, so I won't say too much about it. It seems to me that working through much of the literature and debates in recent years about multiculturalism, very often participants uh, in these debates just seem to be talking right past each other. And I think part of the reason is simply that they're using the term in very different senses, often without knowing it, thereby and often transferring negative connotations associated with one sense to all other senses, and thereby seriously uh, muddying the field. Actually, in the report, I developed a whole chapter to distinguishing six different usages of multiculturalism currently at work, and that's far from a comprehensive list. So, for example, we find that some commentators have in mind the aggressive identity politics characteristic of the 1980s and 1990s, and often premised on an essentialist view of group identity. Others, by contrast, have in mind an attitude of cultural relativism, the view that we have no epistemological grounds on which we can criticize practices belonging to a different culture, practices such as forced marriage. Well, in the report, I criticize both those senses, among others, and I suggest it's far better to use the term to refer to a specific set of public policies, policies which don't in any way assume those unhelpful senses. If we're to move the debate beyond what's so often an exchange of emotive and ideological salvos, we simply need to be much clearer about the senses we're using than has often been the case. Well, second, why a retrieval of multiculturalism? Two reasons, briefly. One, generalized dismissals of something called multiculturalism send extremely unwelcome and even intimidating signals to many members of Britain's ethnic and religious minorities especially newer ones whose public standing is not yet secure. Whatever their intent, these dismissals are discursively disrespectful. The other reason is that there's a wide range of multicultural policies which remain eminently defensible as attempts to promote what in the report I call multicultural justice, the just treatment of minorities whose public identities are at risk of continuing disrespect, marginalization, or even oppression. Commitment to such policies, it seems to me, is in danger of being weakened as a result of loose and negative talk about multiculturalism. Well, securing multicultural justice could mean a wide range of things. Time is against me, so I can't give any examples. I'm sure they will be forthcoming in the discussion. So let me very briefly um, say something about why a Christian retrieval of multiculturalism. The report has two chapters outlining a Christian theological perspective on multiculturalism and suggesting why it might have relevance not only for Christians but also for the general public. Well, the immediate question that will be fired back at that is this. How can the beliefs of just one of Britain's many religious minorities 
and by the way, I regard Christianity as a minority religion in the UK, notwithstanding the 2001 census in which 70% of you, well, most of you anyway, um, claimed to be Christian. I think Christianity is, in fact, a minority religion. So the question is, how can the beliefs of just one of Britain's religious minorities presume to offer a framework for a whole multicultural society? Isn't that to risk a creeping restoration of Christendom? Or if we throw the field open to just anyone, to a return to tribalism? Well, very briefly, a response to that very understandable concern. Recent decades have seen the appearance of what seems to me to be cogent critiques of what's often called the Enlightenment Settlement. But in spite of such critiques, it's still remarkably widely held that social peace and political progress can only be attained if the public realm is kept free of the influence of religion. Well, obviously, we're all aware of extremist manifestations of, of religion that must be kept out uh, away from public influence as is the case with extremist forms of secularism. But if a society marked by irreversible ethnic and religious diversity is also to live up to its commitments to be a truly representative and liberal democracy, it must protect public space for the expression of religiously inspired political claims. A representative liberal democracy must not insist that religiously motivated citizens speak in a supposedly universal, religiously neutral language which might frustrate the expression of their deepest identities. To do so would be both illiberal and undemocratic. But let me suggest that it would also be counterproductive. For such religious voices have in the past made enormously valuable contributions to social justice and political progress, and they're doing so again today. And let me just throw in one very quick example. The successful Jubilee 2000 campaign to reduce the debt of impoverished developing countries was launched on the strength of appeals to a biblical text like Leviticus 25, which sets out a scheme for radical economic redistribution in ancient Israel. To seek to mute those constructive, if sometimes counter-cultural voices, especially at a time when our society is being confronted with very fundamental questions about its moral and spiritual values, like those that the credit crunch has thrown up, would be to close off a potentially rich source of moral and political renewal. Well, my report is just one attempt to make such a contribution from within the Christian tradition, and I think a debate about multiculturalism would be enriched if many others made similar contributions, drawing explicitly on their own deepest religious or secular worldviews. It seems to me that public debate in a multicultural society demands no less than that. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. Um, I'd like to get the panel to respond to that, and specifically to the question, first of all, of whether multiculturalism is retrievable. And Alan, you live in Newham, which is possibly one of the most diverse, if not the most diverse borough in England. You've been quite dismissive of romantic notions of multiculturalism. Are you persuaded by Jonathan's argument that it is retrievable? Um, 
To tell you the truth, no, I'm not. Uh, and of course, I come from a Christian perspective as well, but Christians, like everybody else, can have debates amongst themselves and disagree amongst themselves and so on. Um, I am quite uh, critical of the form of multiculturalism that has developed in our society. I want to just give you two examples, if I may, from my own experience that will illustrate the point. There was a primary school in Newham, which I know very well, and the, 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 the September before last, the beginning of the academic year, uh, it was a heat wave. It was 25 degrees, 26 degrees. It also, the opening of the academic year at this primary school coincided with <coughs> Ramadan. And this particular primary school, first day of school, the parents were bringing their young children, primary school, as I say, were bringing their young children in. And the, um, the staff, the white English staff, as it happened to be on the gate at the time, the senior staff were at the gate, and they were accosted by a number of Muslim parents saying, will you please ensure, it's Ramadan, will you please ensure that my little Aisha or my little Abdul uh, will not have anything to eat or to drink because it's Ramadan. Now this is a primary school. So we get the, and this was affirmed by the senior staff of the school, said yes, we will ensure that's the case. In other words, the, the secular authorities will police that particular request of the parents. So we therefore have our situation, the ludicrous situation in our society, where we have to accept anything that it seems that comes along, that little Aisha, age seven, or little Abdul, age seven, can stand in the playground at 25 degrees heat and can be refused by that school a glass of water. Now, I think that illustrates to me where we have got ourselves to. We do not know, we have so lost our identity and our values that we do not know when to say yes and when to say no. That the school's a lovely school. They're lovely people who are running it. But they clearly are saying to themselves, we must go along with whatever the demands that are coming to us. My, my problem with multiculturalism, I won't use my second example because I don't want to take up all the time, but that illustrates the point. My problem with multiculturalism, it, it, it hollows out the core values of our society. It hollows them out. It challenges them. It says actually all values from all religions and elsewhere are equal. And we therefore no longer, as a society, know when to say yes and when to say no. And that breaks down even to street level like, like, uh, like we see in, in, in that, this particular primary school. And you see this time, and I can give you many more examples from my own experience. Uh, but just one last comment, if I can just say this. I very, very, very much value the diversity uh, of, of, of Newham. I enjoy it. I enjoy bringing up my children, my young children, uh, in that. It, the, the globe has come to Newham. We have 120 languages spoken daily in Newham, and I enjoy that, the variety and the diversity of it. But multiculturalism, as practiced so far, no, thank you very much. Perhaps I can get Tarek to respond to that particular example you cite um, in opposition to multiculturalism, because Tarek has written an awful lot on multiculturalism, and I think it's fair to say would be a defender of it. I wonder if you could respond to that. Um, I suppose I, I'm not certain what the objection was. Um, as we all know, um, children go to school and the school is loco parentis. So obviously the children are under the care of the school and they look after, uh, sorry, uh, the school. Yes, the children are under the care of the school and the school looks after the children um, in the absence of their parents, but as if it was their parent and fulfilling the wishes of their parents and the uh, standards of uh, behavior and so on that the parents would expect. So I don't see that it's unreasonable for parents to point out to teachers that the children are fasting that day. Um, now, there could be a debate about is a long fast as a fast in September 
you know, between um, sunrise and sunset, is a long fast appropriate for seven-year-olds? Um, Muslims themselves debate this and um, come to different decisions. Different individuals, different families um, come to different decisions. When children are introduced to fasting, Ramadan is a, is a month of fasting, but when children are first introduced, they're introduced, you know, one day or two days or three days, and as it were, they graduate as they get older, and their parents, who obviously have their best interests at heart, um, decide, ah, yes, now you're old enough to do a full month or whatever. So I'm not quite sure what the objection was. What about the broader point that it hollows out our core values, multiculturalism? Um, but that's not an example of it, surely. Here's an example of some people who strongly <laughs> affirm certain values asking the school to look after their children with those values in mind. No hollowing out is taking place. If anything, the school is being given a certain kind of value substance that it may not otherwise have had. I don't it, see it's it, a hollowing it out. Is, it is not. I believe in fasting. I'm a Christian. But it's nonsense to be up for a, a school authority to say to a seven-year-old when it's 25 degrees, no, you can't have a glass of water. That, in my view, is child abuse and needs to be referred to as child abuse. And I don't, how, why you can't see that, I really don't understand. Well, I mean, what parents do at home, carefully controlled situation at home is one thing, but to ask secular authorities to say, actually, you are to refuse a lab doll at Elisha, age seven, a glass of water, it's blooming 25 degrees out there. I, I actually think it's something you go to social services about. Um, well, if we can't see that, well, we're a million miles from each other. Let me bring Claire Fox in. I do, I, I'm, I'm worried about being distracted by the specific example. Uh, broad, <laughs> broadly speaking, I am um, irritated by the fact that parents are treated with utter contempt by schools about how they, uh, parents rear their children in, in matters of this nature. So I don't want to throw that bit out. I think um, the confusion between what schools and parents should do is almost a different debate. However, I, I, I think that there's something that the that the example wants to illustrate that I, that I have some sympathy with. For me, one of the greatest problems associated with institutionalised multiculturalism, because I think that you can try and redefine itself, redefine it as I think the book does very well, but it makes it not the multiculturalism we all know. Um, the multiculturalism I object to, state-backed multiculturalism, asks us to suspend our judgement and asks us to not be discerning about other people and about other values. And that's one of the things that I object. We are told that we must tolerate, accept, and respect regardless, which I find condescending, ultimately, because we want to really respect somebody. You tell them whether they're talking rubbish or not, or whether their values are wrong or whatever. Um, so that's one thing. We're asked to suspend that. I think there's a confusion, though, um, between multiculturalism and, if you want, a, cosmo a cosmopolitan society. And we've got into a tangle about that, and um, in particular in relation to immigration. And it tends to be assumed that if you're opposed to multiculturalism, um, that you have a problem with immigration. Um, I actually support no immigration controls at all. Rather unusually, I'm a bit of an open borders person which makes me very unpopular amongst absolutely everybody, broadly speaking, um, <laughs> left and right. However, I am equally opposed to multiculturalism, which I don't think has got anything to do with immigration. And I think that what's happened is that 
in politics, in a way, in politics, there's no politics left. And one of the things that's emerged is um, the way that you kind of make yourself known in society is by saying, recognize me. Recognize, I mean, in the broadest sense, as a kind of victim politics, recognize my pain. But it's claiming that your particular cultural background, your particular ethnic my, uh, identity, your particular uh, uh, whatever it is, gives you a special claim on, 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 on attention. And so you say, you can't say that to me because I'm a Christian. Or you can't say that to me because I'm a Sikh. Or you can't say that to me because I'm a lesbian. Or you can't say that to me because. And we have ended up pussyfooting around each other based on what are effectively essentialized sides to ourselves. Things which actually have got nothing to do with making ourselves become somebody else. So I, I, I'm nervous about that. What I uh, support is political equality. I think that people need to be afforded political equality, not respect or, you know, patting on the back, but that they are not discriminated against politically. And that, by the way, encompasses within it, and one of the universal values which I hold on to, is religious conscience. I and mean, that is a political right. The right to exhibit, have political freedom is a political right which I would go to the death for as a secular, uh, a secular humanist. And I think it's being jeopardised to say that you can't support uh, religious freedom unless you're supportive of multiculturalism is a nonsense, uh, in my view. Uh, let me bring Jonathan in again on that, this idea that multiculturalism opens the ground to special pleading from different interest groups and you could be perfectly well supported and covered by political rights instead. Well, I mean... Clearly, you know, you can find examples where this has been the case over the last 20 years, uh, both in the rhetoric of particular minorities and, and sometimes in the policies actually granted to them. So, you know, I, I, I'm fully aware of that. So my analysis of multicultural policies is, I hope, quite nuanced in both recognizing precisely those kinds of weaknesses and failures, but at the same time wanting to assert the essential core value behind it, which is actually pretty close to what Claire just said, namely equality of treatment. Uh, so, I mean, on, on that particular point, I think we're probably in quite a bit of agreement. Um, if I can take <coughs> back to the question of uh, does multiculturalism hollow out core British values? I mean, this has been a major theme for the last uh, 10 years or more, and it's a major theme in, in, in the report. Um, I, I, I described that development rather neutrally. I, I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think debates about what are core social values national values, perhaps, are absolutely essential. Uh, the claim I make here is that they should be resolved, well, not resolved, aired, and they're never going to be resolved, finally, aired in the free realm of civil society, and that governments should not authoritatively decide on those things. The last thing I want is some cabinet minister writing up for me a list of shared national values that I'm supposed to subscribe to. And I'm a white, middle-class Englishman. What, what if, you're, if I'm a member of a minority group? That's the last thing you want. So, yes, we need a debate about shared values. That debate needs to take place in places like this, in civil society, in the media. But let's not let government get its hands on that kind of debate and try to close off discussion 
arbitrarily. But one of the things you talk about at some length in your report is different definitions of multiculturalism, which are, are very important. And I wanted, I wanted to put this to, to Tarek, who's also written a lot about it. David Cameron was very careful to attack specifically state multiculturalism. Uh, but one of his former MPs, uh, Paul Goodman, writing in The Guardian, in it, he attacked that and said, you know, basically we're getting tangled in this argument over multiculturalism. He's trying to be too nuanced about it. He's trying to signal one thing to the Tory faithful and another to ethnic minority voters, and it doesn't wash. Mm. Well, when I read um, Jonathan's Six Senses of Multiculturalism on page 32, which he uh, referred to earlier, um, it made me think, oh, what do I mean by multiculturalism? And I thought about the different meanings in my own writing and work, and I managed to identify five and listed them, brought them here. But I don't know whether I'll be able to get onto those, but I do want to say something about state multiculturalism because I don't <coughs> understand it as um, Claire has just presented it. Um, I don't see that state multiculturalism involves people suspending judgment or values in a um, novel or problematic way. We, we live with other people as citizens, equal citizens, um, within a, a shared polity um, who may have quite different lives and values to us. Um, when, when we meet them, we sometimes uh, discuss with them their uh, particular point of view, we make comments, we get to know them, we sometimes learn from that, or sometimes it just makes us aware that we disagree and, and you know, we sometimes let them know, it depends how well we know them. But when we talk about multiculturalist policies, you know, state multiculturalism, it's, it's not about making judgments or not making judgments in the sense of approving of various kinds of values. I mean, if we take the uh, example that we started off with, the, the school obviously has to have commitment to a certain kinds of values. You know, this is a state school, a state institution of a kind, has to have certain kinds of, of values. And Alan was appealing to some of these values in relation to issues to do with um, childcare. You know, how do we look after children? So there are all kinds of values um, to do with uh, respecting children and pedagogy and so on. What is happening in that example is that some parents are asking for another value which the school is, let's say, at time A, unfamiliar with because it's new, newly settled people in that neighborhood, new citizens are asking the school to include a value, value to do with fasting, which the school is, as it were, culturally not familiar with. And so there may be a new policy which says, we ask head teachers and schools to do X, Y, and Z in respect of certain uh, Muslim practices and so on. That is neither approving of Islam or of fasting or of anything else or disapproving of it. It is treating people as equal citizenship uh, citizens just as um, other people are being treated in respect to their values. It's, it's not a suspension of judgment in some kind of moral relativistic way. Um, staying with Newham and, and Alan, I'm wondering, there were lots of other examples I, I just scribbled down about, examples of drawing lines in the sand and where it was appropriate to allow or to ban something, expressions of 
cultural identity sure. or religious identity. And I wanted to bring up another example that was also uh, in your area, and that's the East London Mega Mosque that was proposed and which you oppose. I mean, is that something... Um, why do you fiercely oppose that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely I get also called all sorts of names because of it. I'm certainly not anti-Muslim. I'm not anti-mosque. But the particular with this particular mosque is the group behind it that called Tablighi Jamaat, which Muslims in this um, auditorium will know. They are a very separatist group. They're basically, their teaching, to put it in, in, in plain English, is if, if you want to be a good Muslim, you don't contaminate yourself by mixing with non-Muslim society. That's put in simple terms, that's their teaching. I think we should uh, point out that they also say that they're a peaceful group and that they don't have any... I, I, I don't comment about their... They say they're a terrorist group. I'm not talking about that whatsoever. I'm talking about the social implications rather than whatsoever. There's debate about whether they are or are not have associations with terrorism. I'm not referring to that. I'm just talking about their, the, the social outworkings. They are very misogynist, um, but particularly in this context of what we're talking about today, their teaching is extremely isolationist and separatist. And they are wanting to put up what was originally planned to be the biggest mosque in Europe, which would be a platform to promote their form of isolationism. Now, one of the delights of living in, in the East End of London is it is very diverse, it is very multicultural, and um, we rub along reasonably well together. We don't have this separation, which I understand in northern towns, whereby you have the English and you have the, the Asians and so on, they don't mix. We actually rub along reasonably well together. And my opposition is on a number of things, but particularly about this thing, that actually it, it is feeding into what I perceive to be the sort of silo multiculturalism, whereby people live in their silos. And the teaching of Tablighi Jamaat is you live within your Tablighi silo and you have as minimum amount of relationship with the people around you as possible. And the implications of that are there for all to see in other uh, Tablighi Jamaat mosques. You go to the headquarters up in Dewsbury in, in, in Yorkshire and they, they have created an enclave. Their teaching has created a, what others will rudely call a ghetto. But that's what they have created because that's what they're about. Now I think insofar as we say... Uh, everything is relative, everything is equivalent, and therefore your views are as good as my views and so on. We then hand, stand back and, and take a sort of stand-back view of things. We therefore allow people to do things which are intrinsically antisocial. Now, if we have core values, and we adhere to those core values, we, the professionals, the politicians elsewhere, will be able to say, actually, I'm sorry, but those teachings, the social outworkings of your religion is simply not acceptable in our society. That is why I'm opposing it, one of the major reasons why I'm opposing this particular mosque. It's this separatism, this isolation, or creating silos, which I think in the long run damage our society and undermine our society. Claire Fox, can I bring you in as an, a, another critic of multiculturalism? Aren't we really talking about Islam here? Lots of examples of people opposing multiculturalism. If you look at the history of how um, we turned against multiculturalism in Europe, it's really in the face of Islam, isn't it? Isn't multiculturalism here basically just a, another word? Um, no. Uh, it's obviously um, been sharpened by, um, you know, the 9-11-7-7 and some hysteria around Islam, that's true. Um, but it, multiculturalism existed long before those things for a start off. And um, so there's always a slight, because I think one of the things that happens in these debates is that um, that can often be used, by the way, to silence critics of multiculturalism because you get accused of Islamophobia. And um, I refuse to accept that that's what drives critics of um, uh, multiculturalism. Some may be, I don't know, but uh, 
That's one thing. I think that, but I think that I, I just want to, however, remind us of what the atmosphere is like in Britain today, where people are frightened of offending each other. And that is the outcome of multiculturalism. They are frightened to say. Now, you can say, well, that might not be written down in a policy, but people walk around on eggshells, frightened that if they say the wrong thing, they will be accused of offending different groups. That is the reality. Do you think it's not sh shifting that there's been a, a pushback against? Well, there's yeah, yes. You can. Say, there's all sorts of uh, political correctness gone mad. Jokes. There is a. Uh, there is. A, there is a. There is a. There is a kind of. Oh, you know, look, it, it, they're all Matt, you know, and so on. It's the extreme things. You use lots of them in your book. And I agreed with, in the report, the fact that some of the attacks on multiculturalism are shrill and are based on silly or extreme examples. But that doesn't take away from the fact that if anybody thinks that we live in a more liberal society today where you can say what you think about what you want, then, I, well, invite me. Uh, it's not what it's like, right? It's not what it's like. So formally, you say, oh, multiculturalism is old hat, uh, or political correctness is old hat, we don't live like that, we can say whatever we want. Just try it. See how long your job lasts for a start, right? It's not going to happen. Um, it's not, is it? Claire, so many people say what you've just said. Um, and, I mean, if criticism of Islam of conservative Islam, of conservative uh, organizations like the Blihi Jamaat um, are any uh, criterion, I mean, they're being criticized all the time. Um, but I purposefully didn't refer to uh, Islamic groups. That's what I'm saying is it's not that. It's no, no, not no, as no, narrow no. as that. Okay, well, I mean, most Muslims um, would love other groups to be in the firing line if you say that <laughs> we're spending too much time criticizing just one group and multiculturalism is preventing us from criticizing other groups. When you think about how, you know, a uh, few decades ago, um, ethnic minorities were represented in sitcoms, the kinds of jokes that were regarded as legitimate and so on, and which have now, to a much larger extent, have been kind of washed out of um, fiction, of television, of the whole ways in which uh, uh, black people and ethnic minorities are presented and so on. And so much critical comment, aggressive critical comment, is focused on Muslims, whether it's to do with um, not mixing, terrorism, wearing the veil, whatever it is. The idea that people are biting their tongues because they're dying to criticize and they can't. Um, I hear this refrain so much, but because we hear it so much, it's difficult to um, accept that it's not being aired. Tarek, can I just say, I am not suggesting that there's not quite a lot of shrill criticism of extreme Islam, and I know... Islam. I know, all right, and I know that, as I said, around 7-7 and 9-11, that's true. We're talking about the policies of multiculturalism, and it's much broader than that issue, is what I'm saying. And... I'd, I'm, I'm only making that point because, yes, you will hear some quite shrill things about Islam in the public square, but you are actually uh, not acknowledging what I'm saying, which is, is that we live in a society where I would suggest that in the name of multiculturalism and tolerance, and it's a real bastardization of the, t 
of what tolerance really should mean is we're told that we should be tolerant of people in a way that means suspending our criticism. And if you go into schools, which I know that you will know, and um, multiculturalism, you have to respect other people's cultures. That is the orthodoxy. And I'm saying that is a real problem for an open, vibrant, liberal public square. That's what I object to. But, but I wanted to just clarify one thing, by the way. There's a, there's a slight problem on the people who are anti-multiculturalism, as it were, my side of the argument, though, um, which is this idea that multiculturalism has hollowed out British values as though multiculturalism is something that's arrived and hollowed out these very robust British values. The inference of that, by the way, is often these immigrants have come in and hollowed out these um, very robust British values because that's sort of a bit what one might mean. What I'd say is that actually, ironically, British values collapsed and nobody knows what they are anymore in any sense of what universal. And multiculturalism has filled the gap. In many ways, the state has used the, 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 the ideology of multiculturalism as a substitute for the fact that it no longer knows what it stands for anymore. It doesn't know what it believes. We as a society are in a state of perpetual uh, you know, self-loathing, uncertainty about all sorts of things uh, in terms of what, of what we stand for. And for me, therefore, we have to be very careful about I mean, I, I, what, I, what I would say is, is that I agree, and this is what I really like this man before, we have to have a public debate what, about what our shared values are. You know, Gordon Brown declaring a British songbook isn't going to do it. I thought it was hilarious, just finally, that when they were doing the kind of social integration, we've got to get the, uh, the Muslims to integrate in the way that Tariq said, completely ridiculous, you know, this targeting in a city. They sort of said, we'll, we'll know that they've signed up to British values because we're going to go around the mosques and check that they understand our health and safety politics and our child protection policies. And that was about it. And you know, that's about what Britain means today. The only thing they can think that it means to kind of join in society is to become as utterly risk averse and paranoid about paedophilia as the rest of us. Very inspiring, that is. Let's, let's continue on the theme of, of finding these British values, though, because uh, French President Sarkozy has introduced compulsory history classes and classes in women's rights. Uh, we've heard David Cameron talk about citizens tests and, and compulsory history classes. Do you think that's a good idea, Jonathan? Well, some of these things are good ideas. I mean, it, the history, the, the, the school curriculum has changed quite significantly over the last five, ten years. So there's much greater attention to British history, which I think is actually perfectly defensible. There's also a continuing commitment <coughs> to um, cultural histories, black and Asian history, and, and that's absolutely essential. I mean, you cannot separate these two because British history is so intertwined, it's inseparable from Britain's interactions with Africa, Asia, and other parts of the world. You cannot even teach British history without also teaching about diverse cultural histories. And is it really so, important to assert that strong British identity in the face of um, disintegrating ideas about multiculturalism? Well, it depends what you mean by British identity. I, I mean, I, I, in preparing this, I read probably a dozen official reports over the last 10, 15 years <coughs> somehow survived. Um, and almost all of them issue this plea to define what are core British values. But none of them deliver the goods. They all say it's something that must be done, but they don't say what they are or who should do it. And I think the answer to that simply is that you know, we should not leave it to official bodies to take the lead in this area. 
it's, it's down to people like us to stop that debate. And would you say our um, British values are Judeo-Christian based or not? Because that's well, a, an area of it's uh, controversial debate. Well, it, it can't be controversial historically to say that British values have been formed substantially by Judeo-Christian values. That's simply a matter of record. Right. But in They've your also report, you say that secular humanism has now basically taken over a post-Christian Britain, and so it's dangerous yeah. for a Christian to talk about returning to a British society, which is basically no longer a Christian society. Well, OK, we're running the number of issues together there. I mean, so I also say that you know the secular enlightenment is also a crucially formative part of modern British history. So both those traditions have... Um, you know, right of occupation, you could say, that they're simply there, extant, and their influence continues. Uh, but now, of course, in the last 50 years, there have been a number of very different cultural communities present who have shaped the ongoing British identity. British identity is, is not a fixed thing. Uh, it's constantly in flux. There are certain things that stand out. There are certain family resemblances. But when you look closely, quite a number of those characteristic British values are actually not uniquely British at all. I mean, things that are typically wheeled out by, quite rightly, by both Gordon Brown and David Cameron would be, you know, the rule of law, political equality, democracy, some degree of toleration, but not too much, Claire, <laughs> the right kind of toleration. But those are not uniquely British values. They don't define anything that's called uniquely British. They're, they're basically Western values, at least at their best. So it's, it's hard to define... To me, British identity is not something that you can enumerate in a, in a list of values. You, you, you communicate it by way of thick description of a narrative. This is how Britain came to be. This is its journey. This is its story. It's multiple journeys. It's always going to be complex. It's always going to be contested. And that's absolutely fine. Now, having said that, Alan is absolutely right, and, and, and Claire is as well, and I mean, I know Tariq agrees with this as well, that there are absolutely essential legal and political principles that everybody simply must accept. That goes with not just citizenship, but, but residence in the UK. <coughs> Whether that's child protection, and we can argue about the particulars of that case, or, or men, uh, okay, it's right up here, sorry. Um, so, so there are certain essential constitutional, political, and legal values that one can enumerate. They're not fixed either, but, but you can enumerate them. They're in development. And it is quite appropriate for governments to make explicit what those are. And they do so all the time through legislation and through policy. And that's quite right. And here, again, I agree with Alan that you cannot ground such fundamental values on a philosophy of cultural relativism. That's sinking sand. Um, there's an awful lot of popular cultural relativism out there in loose talk, you know, in pubs and taxi drivers and schools as well. I mean, there's all, all sorts of attitudes of cultural relativism are around, but they need to be challenged where, where appropriate. And I agree here with Tarek that <coughs> accommodating the particular cultural or religious practices of, of, of uh, religious or ethnic minorities can be justified on universal grounds. The principle of accommodation and acceptance of diversity has to be premised on a universal commitment. That's what I try to do in this report. It's not adequately grounded on, on any, uh, anything like a philosophy of moral or cultural relativism. Well, I, think, sorry, well, I think something's happened to toleration which is relevant to both the issues about national values and whether they're being hollowed out and relevant to um, what Claire was saying 
about um, putting up with things and not being able to speak critically to people. Um, I mean, traditionally, the classical notion of toleration is you have the power to interfere, perhaps to prohibit something, but you refrain from using that power even though you disapprove of that activity. So powerful people, let's say in some countries it was Protestants, in some countries it was Catholics, had the power to persecute a minority Christian sect and did so for all, all kinds of periods of time, but at a particular time said, let's stop persecuting them and we'll put up with them. We will tolerate their presence. In, and that's you know, fairly tied up with our ideas about uh, the coexistence of different, of different faiths, even just within Christianity, but then uh, other faiths as well. But in the 1960s, a, a new idea kind of became politically emergent and then grew and has proved to be very popular. And this is the idea, and it's not principally, not initially anyway, amongst religious people, but other groups who are kind of defined by some form of difference from the majority or the dominant group who say we don't want to be tolerated you know you can have your toleration back we want to be respected when gay people said they didn't want to be tolerated they wanted homosexuality to be as publicly present you know in plays in, on television in our advertising in our uh, national life, they wanted homosexuality as present as heterosexuality, because that's not absent or in some ways neutral. Or when women said, why, why should the public space always reflect masculinity? Why can't we have um, women more present in all our public spaces, whether it's political or the media or whatever? Or black people made a similar, similar argument about their not being confined to margins, but being found at the center of uh, national life, of public space, and being able to assert that they were black and proud. Not that they were tolerated, you know, despite your blackness, we will employ you, but they could be as black as they wanted to be, that was their perfect right to be, and there was no loss of citizenship. That asserting your own identity, group identity, which may have been historically marginalized, went along with equality. It was, sameness wasn't the price of equality. Assimilation wasn't the price of equality. Now what has happened in the 1980s and 90s, uh, 80s and 90s, especially in Britain but in other countries as well, is some religious groups have brought, bought the same idea and they say we too want to be respected. We don't just want to be tolerated as a religious minority. We want to be respected in the way that you say that racial minorities, ethnic minorities, gender uh, groups, sexuality groups are to be respected. And this is where we've now got this kind of um, a certain kind of you know, cross-wiring that traditional arguments of religious tolerance, people are saying, well, you know, if you just step back, we'll tolerate you. Why are you so much in our face all the time demanding this, that, and the other? But they say, yeah, but you seem to think that Political claims making, you know, assertive politics is part of democratic life, except when we do it. Then you say, well, step back and we'll tolerate you. 
bring up the tolerance thing, it also wondered on the flip side of that, uh, I can't remember who said it, that a, a tolerant man should also be intolerant of intolerance, and that's a, another part of the debate that we need to get into. But I wonder briefly, we're going to throw it open to the floor now, and, and I'll ask for a couple of questions at a time so we can get through as many as possible. And bearing in mind, Alan will have to leave in about 10 minutes, so we'll, uh, we'll probably disproportionately lean towards Alan at first. Yes, sir. Uh, apologies for those who may have heard this one before because I, I asked this question a few weeks ago at a largely economic migration issue. Uh, the name's uh, Ewan Grant. I'm a former intelligence officer with Customs and Excise and uh, I've worked in Central Asia where I've noticed quite considerable uh, intermarriage between Slav and Turco-Mongoloid peoples. Um, my question is, is there not a need to actually both types, both sets of views and indeed all the spectrum in those views regarding multiculturalism and the way forward, whether we abandon it or modify it, to everybody look together because I think we've got a very, very difficult situation ahead. Uh, the two examples I quoted last time from different types of society suggest it's a, it's a common problem. The first was in when I was on board a Soviet warship in the early 1980s, and I noticed that this is a society with one massive problem, because every single officer and petty officer was European, and every single rating was um, from Central Asia, Turco-Mongoloid, and it was really sh shocking. And look what happened to the Soviet Union a few years later. The other example is again from the mid-80s when I was at the Alamo in San Antonio in Texas and I saw two societies there, quite shockingly so, because every single person visiting the site was very obviously a wasp and in a largely Hispanic town, city, um, everybody around keeping their distance, two societies two societies very definitely, so it suggests we've got challenges ahead and we have to look at a variety of views to solve them. Thank you. Um, Hi, yeah, it's just um, really on the point um, that you were making, Tariq, regarding uh, what's happened over the last 30 years, specifically in the 80s and 90s, and um, women's rights, gay rights, civil rights in general being moved forward, um, and that being a democratic process. Um, but if we're then presented with a group of people, whether they be from a religion, or from a specific type of culture with an ideology that is specifically undemocratic, that is saying, we don't believe in democracy. We believe in what we believe in, and we believe you should believe in what we should believe in, and if you don't, we don't really care. But we demand respect. Is that moving forward, if we accept that? Question. Let me just ask it. Uh, let me just put that one to Alan. Yes, I mean, I, I, it's um, 
it's quite a difficult issue, um, and it comes back to you know when do you tolerate, how long do you tolerate the intolerant? And uh, this is a big question going back in the days of communism and Marxism. It's a um, it's a big question now uh, with regard to certain areas within the Muslim community and certain those within them, as, uh, those that see their Islam in political uh, terms rather than anything else. Um, I, I come back to at the heart of the thing. Uh, I come back to, uh, as a society, we can only say yes or no to anything if we know who we are and what our own values are. And I still come back, in the long run, our problem is that we have, we have we, we've said actually all values are equal. All that, we aren't in a position now as a society, regrettably, and I'll uh, come, come back to the moment, to say actually yes or no to anything. All comers, no matter what they say, is of equal value. And that is the danger, and that is the problem for our society. Now, my own position on this would be, I don't think uh, that you can deny that this society, going back to a point that, that Jonathan made, this society for a millennia and a half has had Christian influence. And therefore, Christian values, I'm not saying everybody goes to church, but Christian values, even now, after 50 years or more of fairly aggressive ideological secularization, which I thoroughly disapprove. I don't disapprove of secularization, but the sort we have in this country, I do. This is just a sort of front for atheism. We have actually lost the, we lose it, rapidly losing these values. And these values are good values. Let me ask one quick question, just doing all this. It's absolutely critical, this. Some things we don't give way on. There is no other society anywhere, you go to China, Japan, or anywhere else, that will take a paedophile that has killed children lock him up in prison, and then put him on suicide watch. It is only Christianized societies, those that have some historical, do, that will do that, because Christianity offers a very high view of the person, of life. Other societies would see that as ludicrous, utterly, utterly ludicrous. A paedophile killer and put him on suicide watch. What do you want to keep them alive for? Now, those values are there, whether we go to church today or not, are some of the essential values which we are busy eroding and we're not replacing them anything else. Those values are part of our identity as Britain or as England or whatever you are. And only when we reaffirm those values can we turn to any of these other values coming along and say yes, no, yes, no, those, that is accepted or that is not accepted and so on. That would be my position. So it comes back to a reassertion, not about a Christian theocracy, but a reassertion of those fundamental Christian values as mixed in with the Enlightenment and many other influences. One of the benefits of our society is an open society, a generous, hospitable society coming from a Christian hospitality. We welcome immigrants. We welcome those from other communities for what they contribute to us here. And just briefly, following up on this spirit of Christian tolerance, would you therefore tolerate an undemocratic group such as Hisbut Tahrir, or would you ban it? Ultimately, you'd have to say, well, you ban them. But one of the things we do is we give as much space for as many people. The thing about the Christian gospel is it allows people to disagree. Ultimately, from a Christian theological point of view, it allowed mankind to kill the Son of God. That's the big gap, the big space which God offers, and therefore our society offers to people. You had this space, so you can be his but Tahrir. We actually put up with the BMP. We may hate what the BMP says, but we don't actually close them down. But ultimately, there does come a stage when you say, actually, his but Tahrir or BMP or whatever it is, is no longer and no more. But until we know who we are, until our national identity is there, which I would argue comes from our Christianity and many, many other influences, until we know who we are, we're not in a position to say yes or no to anybody, because everybody's views are as good as anybody else's. 
Well, thank you very much for your contribution there, Alan. Alan has a dinner to go to now, and uh, we should let him go. <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Just briefly before we move on to more questions, picking up on the, on the first gentleman's point about whether maybe this debate, I guess you were suggesting, has become a bit too polarised. We need to pull together, you said. What, what do you think about that, John? Actually, I was going to respond to the second question. Well, yeah, please yeah. respond to both briefly. That would be great. Uh, let me start with, very specifically, on the question of whether you know, multiculturalism means that we have to give political toleration to a group which is fundamentally opposed to British constitutional democracy. Um, I mean, I broadly agree with what Alan was getting at there. Uh, I think here, an interesting example is Turkey over the last 15 or 20 years, where the Turkish Constitutional Court, later backed by the European Court of Human Rights, I think made quite bad mistakes in attempting to prescribe a party that was at that stage, this is I think the early 90s or so, committed to what in Britain you would probably call a radical Islam or an Islamist political position. They were not advocating revolution, they were not advocating the, the conversion of Turkey into an officially Islamic state, but they certainly were advocating the extensive use of Sharia law in, in Turkey at that early stage. Well, it seems to me that there was a knee-jerk reaction on the part of the Turkish Constitutional Court, which, which actually banned that party, and it reformed under a different name. Of course, now it's in government. <laughs> um, now, the mistake was made that it did not allow what we call the disciplines of democracy to take their course. That has now happened. Far from saying that Turkey is a bed of roses, I mean, there are all kinds of things I would probably disagree with in terms of the present Turkish government. But over time, there has been an educative, moderating, democratizing impact on a party which started out in that sort of radically, almost anti-constitutional position. So I think that's an important lesson uh, that we can learn, if such a group ever started to gain serious ground in the UK, which so far, it has not. Um, Tarek. Yes. Um, you didn't specifically uh, mention Muslims or Islam as, you know, uh, an anti-democratic group, but uh, uh, I think Jonathan interpreted it that way, and I, I will too. Um, I mean, of the dozens of Muslims I know, I only know one person who's against democracy. Now, you might say, well, that's because I lead a very sheltered life. <laughs> but I also look at very large data sets. Um, and um, a few years ago, the Pew Foundation, based in the United States, that does very extensive um, studies, opinion poll-based, survey-based studies um, across the globe of um, shifts in religious opinions and things like that. They, they did a, a world kind of values survey and th they were particularly concerned to see um, the difference between what we might call Muslim majority countries and non-Muslim majority countries on issues like democracy. And they found that actually there wasn't a very big difference. So this is just interviewing ordinary people, you know, and choosing a certain number by age and gender and location and so on. Um, Ordinary people in Muslim-majority countries were as supportive of and as um, aspiring of democracy as people in non-Muslim-majority uh, countries. And this was true including when they didn't themselves live in a democracy. And we now see this very much. 
this year, you know, the Arab Spring, countries that we thought were irredeemably condemned to um, non-democracy, we see uprisings of of democratic demands, of people demanding democracy and an end to all these regimes that have been propped up partly by American and British foreign policy. Um, and the ones that we don't like, we condemn, and the ones we do like, we, we just say, well, they're, they're all right. And the question about, uh, I mean, there's no consistency about democracy. So I agree with the point that uh, Jonathan made about the disciplines of, of democracy. I don't think it is true that um, there's a, a group of Muslims, or Muslims as a whole, are somehow anti-democratic and con condemned to that and so on. I mean, there's no mention of democracy in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, and yet somehow Christians have managed to be Democrats. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> well, I mean, in the case of the Catholic Church, of course, it's only a few decades old, or, or at least... Or at least perhaps just a century and a bit, depending on how you measure it. So I think we should give Muslims a chance as well. And briefly, Claire, and then we'll go to as many questions as we can fit in. Um, it's an absolute... You have to be tolerant of intolerance, or you're not tolerant. It is a ridiculous notion to go around saying, I'm tolerant, apart from those people that I can't tolerate because they're so backward and intolerant. I mean, that's not tolerance, right? That is intolerance. But we know that we live in a kind of society where everybody proclaims themselves as a kind of right-on tolerant type until they come up against something they disagree with that offends them today's orthodoxy, and then we all start clamping down. But I think I wanted to also just remember something about, because it's assumed, and uh, Tarek has said it, but it's, it's partly uh, very popular today to say that if I say I tolerate you, that this is an insult. I actually think that all that we can expect from each other is that we tolerate each other. Um, because otherwise we are demanding that you have to like me, and you have to give me some regard. Um, and notice, I mean, no you don't. Right? I, I, what I don't want you to do is to interfere with me, right? You tolerate me. We tolerate each other's views, regardless of whether we find them offensive, even actually behavior. You know, we don't have to fall in love with smokers to be able to tolerate them. Oh, sorry, wrong country, because we don't do that anymore. But, you know, and, or, you know, drinkers or whatever it is. But these days we become incredibly intolerant of different types of behavior. And I, I of course, need to say I didn't make this up. This is all from J.S. Mill rather than myself. Um, but the, 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 the reason I say it is because actually what the women's movement wanted, what the gay rights movement wanted, what the anti-racist movement wanted historically was equal rights in front of the law, not to have lots more black women gay faces on EastEnders or Corrie or to be liked, right? They didn't want to have their political right, they didn't want to be discriminated against because of their politics. And if there are groups who are oppressed in that way that they are discriminated against politically, they should, we should fight for equal rights for those groups, whoever they are. But to turn that into somehow we, we want to be more than tolerated and then expand that into all sorts of cultural groups does in fact therefore demand that we suspend judgment and discernment as I said at the beginning and that's what I object to about today's multicultural orthodoxy. Um, however, I tolerate it, but I'll argue against it. Um, yeah. Can I invite some more questions? If I could ask you to keep your questions as short as possible. A lot of hands are going up and we have 15 minutes, um, which is a long time in radio, so we can get through it. Uh, we've got uh, a couple of people along the back there, in the middle. Uh, 
Hi, uh, my name is Dina. I'm a third year law student here. Um, basically, I just wanted to say that I'd always seen multiculturalism in a good light, and uh, this is the first time I've heard it criticised so heavily, and I didn't realise that there were so many bad connotations attached to the word. Um, I also am asking why so much, I understand that uh, Alan's left now, but um, it was kind of directed towards him, why he's so critical of the fact that a school is accepting um, the faith of um, the students, and I just think it's perhaps it seems to Western values that it's um, an absurd idea, but the fact that schools accepting um, the family's wishes to carry out their religion is kind of seeing multiculturalism at its finest, and um, I find it quite strange that that's being so heavily criticised. Um, if you're talking about the tolerance that we should have in the society. Uh, rejecting that and kind of mocking it seems like we're not being very tolerant. We're actually seeing um, really heavy Western values and not accepting uh, other um, kind of belief systems in society, which is a society that I think has really um, uh, got multiculturalism as a great benefit to it. Thank you. Um, man, a couple of... Yeah. Um, yeah uh, I was... I mean, it's kind of directed towards Alan as well. He uh, talked about um, kind of British values and the hollowing out of them. Um, I've, I remember at school I was once told that uh, if I supported the England cricket team then I was truly English, whereas if I supported any other cricket team that would mean that I don't belong to that group. So uh, I kind of thought to myself maybe I'm not English after all. Um, I think there's a danger with that kind of uh, way of thinking of uh, cultural homogeneity so pushing everyone into a certain camp instead of uh, embracing or even accommodating uh, different uh, belief systems or values. Um, yeah, so it, that you could link that to the school example as well, uh, where you don't have to agree with a certain value just to accept it. We'll take a couple more and then get some responses. If you keep going along this side <laughs> at the back, and then we'll come back down here. Um, one there and then one at the front. I must say that I think that, that Alan was right in the case he mentioned. Talk about parental wishes, well, how about children's rights? I mean, if parents requested that, that teachers beat their children, they wouldn't be allowed to conform with that. So must they conform with, with parental wishes to deny them a, them a drink? Okay. And then just down here at the front on the right, and then we'll come back down here. Um, my question is, is not is there a future for multiculturalism, but whether it had a glorified golden age um, in its past. Because essentially, British experience of multiculturalism has been very much conditioned by two things. Firstly, the secularisation of the 1960s, and secondly, the fact that we have an established church. And actually, it was the, um, some, a theory that emerged in the 1960s, supported by the secular left and by the um, Church of England. And state multiculturalism was very much premised on a kind of black-white racial um, dynamic and almost didn't even consider re the religious rights of um, religious, the rights of religious groups. I know Tarek Madhud has, has, has made this point in, in several publications. And so actually the real challenge to multiculturalism, however flawed the initial concept, came really with the Satanic Verses controversy in 1988. And that's when, for the first time, Muslims asserted their religious rights rather than their racial rights. And, you know, you've got this bizarre situation where you had the Church of England arguing on behalf of Islamic groups for the extension of the Christian-based Blasphemy Act. 
And so, you know, Britain's experience of multiculturalism has been a very flawed one. And I wonder really, essentially, the actual question we should be asking is not, is there a future? But was the whole concept entirely flawed in the first place? Um, just actually, these questions link together quite well because a few of you have mentioned rights a few times and I wanted to put that to you, Tarrant, because you've written a bit about rights and multiculturalism and how the debate's basically moved on since the Equality Act. We've got people on both sides of the argument, a lot of people arguing that religious beliefs and rights aren't being respected now because, uh, you know, gay couples... Um, are allowed to adopt Christians, disagree with that, etc. So there's a whole extra element to this debate now since rights came into the picture. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I personally um, did not necessarily want to see the equality strands like racial equality, sex equality, and so on brought together under a kind of uh, umbrella of human rights. I think um, that's potentially stretching human rights further than um, is warranted. Um, you know, human rights are obviously very important, but they're not necessarily the basis for the kinds of equality claims that um, minority groups have been making. I mean, when Claire said, well, actually, historically, women gay people, black people, and so on, all they wanted was equality before the law. Well, some did at some periods of time, but actually the argument moved from equality before the law to an argument about respect and inclusivity, which was very much about um, how certain groups of people are represented in society, both represented in the sense of like stereotypes and discursive representations, the othering of people, the inferiorizing of people, and represented in terms of, you know, how many people on the board of a, a, a major uh, business, how many people in Parliament, in BBC, uh, and, and so on. So, uh, given that the equality commissions, like the Racial Equality uh, uh, Commission and the Equalities Commission in relation to gender and so on, were about a much wider agenda of equality than human rights. I did think, I worried that um, there may be a kind of reduction taking place when they were brought together within a, a human rights wrapping. On the other hand, I've got to say that the Equalities Act, you know, one of the very last things the Labour government did before the uh, general election that it lost the Equalities Act is actually quite a powerful act in terms of the equalities that it's offering and goes well beyond anything to do with human rights. And it's, you know, it's, it's the strongest Equalities Act within the European Union. So you could say, well, therefore, ah, Tariq, your anxieties were misplaced. That's not how things went. On the other hand, I think the, some of the bodies created by um, the merger into the equal... Um, into the EHRC, so that's what, Equalities and Human Rights Commission, um, they haven't really been as effective um, as some of the uh, smaller commissions like the Racial Equality Commission as well before, and they seem to have kind of disappeared from the radar. We hardly hear anything from them. 
they're not leading debates in the public and all this stuff that we're discussing about the attacks on multiculturalism and so on, you'd have thought, ah, the EHRC would be a big player in those debates, whether it's for or against or kind of, you know, reasoned criticism and so on. So I think we've got a very mixed story about the, the kind of the rights agenda that uh, New Labour's created. Some of it is positive, but some of it um, I'm very mixed about I'm going to collect some more questions and we can address, we can go back and address some of the others as well. Um, gentleman here, one, two, three rows back in the blue top. That's you, sir. Thank you. Um, I'm from Canada where everybody knows we are a terminally nice, pathetically nice country. <laughs> and we have had multiculturalism for, for many decades. Um, so my experience is based on what, what happens at home. And one of the things I think that people observe is that, and what people resist, is that multiculturalism is something that's expected of the white majority and is less imposed on, on others. And in fact, you only have to look around this room to see who comes and who's interested uh, in this topic. Um, I don't know if the experience is, is the same here, but I wonder if, this, if the same effort is put into asking uh, the minorities to be as multicultural as they're asking the majorities to be. While we, can I just pause a second, because it's very interesting that you're from Canada, and because I'm just thinking six years ago, furious debate over Sharia courts in Ontario, and we haven't actually expressly mentioned that, but that's a classic example uh, that we should probably talk about, because here there's been an, also been that debate, the Archbishop of Canterbury waded in, um, and I'm wondering, Claire, what you think about that, do we have, do we allow those parallel Jurisdictions obviously they don't have the same weight under law, but they do. Um, they are working as tribunals that look after family issues, for instance. No, we, we shouldn't. <laughs> that was quick. Thank you. Okay, I'll come can back I come in, in there? Then? Uh, sorry, John. I'd, I'd, I'd like to. Yeah, yeah. We're going to hear some yeah. more questions, but John, oh, okay. quick, quick word from you. I'll exploit the brevity of your answers. Um, I, I actually lived in Canada for eight years, and I was there when that row, row broke out in Ontario. Um, and witnessed it and went to several uh, public meetings about it, watched the media storm and so on. Um, and that case is often used by anti-multiculturalists in Britain to say, uh, let's do what Ontario did. Uh, in fact, I draw the opposite conclusion from that. Uh, what Ontario did was two things. One was good and one was bad. When the storm broke out, and this was a result of a specific announcement made by, I think it was the Islamic Institute for Civil Justice around about 2004, which said that it's incumbent on Muslims to uh, use uh, private tribunals under Sharia law to resolve their disputes. So what the Ontario government did was commission uh, a report called the Boyd Report. You can get it online, Boyd Report Ontario, 200 pages. It's a meticulous, thoroughly researched, and comprehensive analysis of pretty much every dimension of the question of Sharia tribunals. Um, and then the Ontario government promptly dropped the whole thing and abolished religious arbitration, not just for Muslims, but for Christians and Jews as well. So let's not do what Ontario, let's not do the second thing Ontario did, let's do the first thing, which is to have our own Boyd report, something like that, in the UK. And we need this now because the issue is, is pressing. Uh, some of you will know that Baroness Cox introduced a private members bill a few months ago intended specifically to sort of close down 
Sharia tribunals on understandable grounds, namely that women were being coerced into accepting rulings which were denying their civil rights. It's a very powerful concern, but we should pay careful attention to it. Let's have, let's have a, our own board report, and I nominate uh, both uh, Tariq and Claire to be on that, on that commission, and then let's look at the facts about what exa is exactly happening. There's a lot more to say about that, but I suspect... I'm afraid we've got time for two, I, two more questions. Well, um, you, ten no. seconds, Tariq. Oh, <laughs> ten seconds. I I'll, 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 I'll wait till I speak you later. You can incorporate it. In um, two, two questions. Uh, sir, there. Uh, my name's Roger Trigger. I'm, I'm based in Oxford, and I was recently talking to a doctoral student who just arrived from Bangladesh. I asked her how she was settling in, and she said, well, one thing had really shocked her, and I wondered what was coming. And she'd been living with a Bangladeshi family on an Oxford housing estate, and she discovered, and she herself spoke perfect English, uh, but she discovered that the woman in the family had lived in, in Oxford for 25 years and could not speak a word of English. And I gather that that is quite common. Now, that, to my mind, is multiculturalism gone wrong, because I think that's been encouraged by government policy. Governments have spent millions on translations uh, to make life easy for people who won't learn English or who aren't allowed by their husbands to learn English. I think there's that in it too. Um, I discovered that only recently uh, people taking British driving tests are expected to understand English. Uh, they could take them not knowing any English, not being able to read English road signs. Again, that's multiculturalism gone wrong, I think. At the back. Uh, gentleman at the back, close to the video. Can I ask a question about the tension between um, respect, which Tariq talks about, and tolerance and the right to be offensive? And it's where I think identity politics has been played out at its fiercest right now. It's the west of Scotland, and it's to do with the sectarianism debate. Um, Stephen Burrell is a guy, a Rangers supporter, who on Monday was jailed for eight months because he put on his Facebook, he said, Catholics are dirty, smelly bastards, fuck their Pope. And for that he was given eight months jail. He didn't incite violence, he didn't threaten violence, but for the act of saying that, he's ended up in jail for eight months. I'm Irish, Catholic, and a Celtic supporter. And I very, very, very much object to that guy being jailed for expressing his views. I would be interested to see what the panel thought about that particular case. Right, how do we do that in about 30 seconds? <laughs> um, Tarek, what I'm going to do is ask you all to wrap up, yes. if you can address those questions within that too, but essentially if you yeah. could summarise whether there's a future for multicultural Britain and take in these gentlemen's um, suggestions. Well, it would be uh, difficult. Would be I, I have great. to be very selective, I'm afraid, and um, I don't think I will be able to address the last couple of questions. I wanted to... Uh, add an addendum to um, the discussion on the issue of Sharia and UK law, and then I suppose I'll take a minute to answer the question you've just asked me, Jane, about the future. Actually, 30 seconds would be great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose, I mean, I, I entirely agree with um, what Jonathan said about the, the sensible and judicious character of Marion Boyd's report in Ontario and it'd be great if we could have something like that in England. So I won't say anything more about that. What I actually wanted to say is that much as I um, really admire um, Archbishop Rowan, um, 
Getting Muslims into a mess about Sharia when none of them had raised it really was very unhelpful indeed. Um, and what some people aren't aware of now, because they only hear one side of the arguments, is that Muslims are really very divided about the meaning of Sharia, let alone any kind of policy implication, but about the meaning of Sharia. So one of the best known um, Muslim personalities in Britain, Tariq Ramadan, he's absolutely opposed to uh, the legalization in any form of, of Sharia, whatever, whatever that might mean. And actually, this is, there's a global movement amongst Muslims to think of Sharia as having a, a civil status and something to be practiced in civil society and not something um, that is um, required to be translated into uh, national or state law. We see this in Indonesia, Malaysia, Turkey, and if you, if you look at the debates taking place in Britain and North America amongst Muslims, the tide is very much running against the people who want to interpret Sharia in a positive law way rather than as a, a body of ethical principles. Claire. What would your ideal post-multicultural Britain look like, and, and would the teaching of English be compulsory? No. I, 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 I'd, I'd, really, I'd really... Actually, somebody asked about history. I wouldn't mind um, in uh, British schools people, everybody, being taught English well. None of them are. I, I, I'm, slightly, I'm more concerned about that than anything else. Um, it's also the case that over the years, immigrant communities in, in, in all sorts of histor historic uh, periods of sometimes, for example, you know, uh, Jewish people have carried on um, speaking Yiddish in, in, in some communities, but they've fully bought into the values of Western society. It's not just a language thing, is my point. It's not just a technical question. And I don't think that's quite the uh, way that I'd go. Okay, the Equality Act is, should be torn up. It's a disgraceful act. It's so illiberal in so many ways. It makes the workplace a place you'd be frightened to go to in case you, somebody interpreted the indirect uh, discrimination that somebody subjectively thinks happened to them. It's got nothing to do with political equality because it's now reduced to how you feel someone has treated you and discriminated against you. And it's an attempt to use the law to fill in the gaps where uh, values used to live again and that's where this is you know this is not to be confused with universal values this is the imposition of uh, a state-backed outlook which we're told is the one we have to sign up to it's a very serious attack by the way on religious freedom because um, regardless of my views on homosexuality it has to be absolutely uh, the freedom of anybody in a society to say I do not agree with homosexuality without that being subject to the law's intervention. I might consider that to be backward and stupid and ridiculous and have a row. The colleague at the back who raised the point about the, uh, the anti-Pope sentiments of the Rangers fans. I mean I'm not a great fan of Rangers fans I have to say who are broadly speaking speaking from an Irish Catholic background yes anyway I have prejudices against them um, uh, <laughs> However, um, this is the rough and tumble of political debate. They say something stupid, I expose that they said something stupid. They've got prejudiced views, I have an argument with them. The fact that you would make Catholic adoption agencies denounce their very Catholicism 
um, in order to, be, uh, in relation to uh, 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 the, the homosexuality and so on, seems to me to basically say you can be religious as long as you don't practice it or express any of the views that make you religious. As it happens, I'm not religious. Um, but that's an argument, right? That is not something that I would go... Anyway, blah, blah. And then quickly, um, Western, very quick, quick, very quick. Um, Western value. I support... My vision of society is based on uh, the, the, the best of Western civilization, the Enlightenment values that, 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 that were fought for. Uh, many years ago by people, I stand on the shoulders of very great giants and have little to contribute myself. But... When I say Western values, let me just point out that I don't consider them to belong to the West or to be unique to the West any more than I think that Shakespeare is English. Shakespeare is the world and the best of literature. The, the ideas around uh, science and enlightenment values and so on, uh, ideas of toleration, Jasmine uh, uh, and so on, they're not British or English. People from all around the world, anyone, anywhere, can espouse those values. And in fact, many of the immigrants who came to uh, this country, uh, many of my friends who moved to this country in the past, espoused those values regardless of anything else. They, they were uh, entirely happy with Western civilization, not because it's the West, but because it's the best, most advanced way of looking at society. Absolutely, I assert that. Absolutely. And the rule of law in the West is by far more progressive than Sharia law. Absolutely. Sharia law is backward and it should be argued against. It doesn't mean it should be banned, uh, I mean, in the sense that, but it shouldn't be encouraged or we shouldn't say, oh, that's an interesting way of looking at the law. No, it's backward. And in that sense, my final point is, is that the reason it's got nothing to do with the West is most of the arguments I've had about this have been with. Uh, uh, when I've been invited to speak at Islamic societies at universities, including here actually, but anyway, at, at various universities around London, where I've had lots of arguments and interesting arguments with uh, Islamic societies about free civil liberties and freedom of speech and so on. And most of the people there who have espoused the views associated with extreme Islamicist uh, 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 views, uh, for example, Sharia. Many of the girls who, uh, uh, who wore the hijab at those meetings were British-born Asians who were basically had nothing to do with immigration. Their parents, who were immigrants, are sitting, their mothers are sitting there looking at these girls saying, what are you doing? You know, I didn't come here, you know, put your jeans on, right? Um, the point is, and, you know, teenage rebellion, maybe it is, whatever it is. What I'd say is that the political arguments we have to have it's not that I look at somebody and see a hijab and then think, oh, it's a Muslim and therefore they're from an immigrant background and all the rest of it. Is I say, why are you wearing that stupid piece of clothing? Take it off. In a modern society, you shouldn't be wearing it. We don't need a law to do that. What we need is a tolerant, vibrant, argumentative, irreverent society. That's what post-multicultural society should be. Sounds like Jeremy Corbyn. Sounds like you've got some supporters if you would run for office. Um, back to Jonathan, just to summarise, you support multiculturalism, but you also mention in your report not wanting to be frog-marched into fraternity. I wonder if you can just briefly address what that means and, and how you envisage a multicultural Britain of the future. Okay, I'll resist the temptation to pick up what you just said about Islam. It's very tempting, but I'll have to resist. Um, well, that phrase... Uh, that we shouldn't be frog-marched into fraternity is a way of pointing to the inherent limits of government law public policy to bring about something like fraternity or fellowship or community or even cohesion. These are all the buzzwords of policy over the last 10 years. 
you know, the, norm, the principle of cohe social cohesion is just extremely slippery. It's very difficult to define. It's an essentially contested concept. It's not a very good principle to guide public policy, certainly not friendship. Governments don't exist to make us good friends. They exist to protect us from each other and to establish a basic framework of just order in society. Uh, and let me just use that as a segue into a sort of final wrap-up. I mean, so yes, I'm arguing for, in defense of, a particular notion of multicultural justice, you know, the full accounts in, in the report. No time to spell it all out. Um, I've given you an indication of what I mean by it. But a, a crucial element, which I haven't really had a chance to say, is that multicultural justice is only one form of justice. So f for me, the role of government is to... Is, is really essentially defined in, in, in terms of the norm of justice. But justice is multifaceted. It has many different applications and implications. So it includes things like strong protection of individual rights, children's rights, religious rights, equality rights. A whole package of those things flow from that. That's an essential part of justice. Equally, it, it includes social justice or distributive justice. Somebody raised a question earlier, I think, getting at the question uh, of economic inequality as being so fundamental to the experience of ethnic and religious minorities in this country. Arguably, that's more important than things like funding ethnic minority languages. That's what really defines their daily existence, uh, deep economic deprivation. That's another component of justice which government has a responsibility to pursue. Um, retributive justice or, or criminal justice is another dimension of that. And then multicultural justice is sort of nested within those several other kinds of implications of justice. And finally, uh, the requirements of citizenship, which we haven't had much time to talk about tonight. You could say that that's in the larger sense another implication of justice. It's the justice of obligations that we have arising from our membership of the state itself, of the political community. And all of those different dimensions and implications of justice must be held in a judicious balance, and it's extremely difficult to do so. And it seems to me that debates about multiculturalism um, go off track when they obsess narrowly on one or other of those particular dimensions of justice. So we need a, a, you know, a full-orbed, multifaceted understanding of justice, which will both affirm multicultural rights and duties, but also keep them in their proper place. You're right, we didn't have enough time to talk about citizenship, but if you want to know the difference between mere citizenship and virtuous citizenship, I refer you to Jonathan's multiculturalism book that hopefully quite a few of you have got or can get on the website. Uh, back to tolerance and respect. I'm afraid we've reached the limits of the LSE's tolerance for my timekeeping. We're way over. And uh, I guess we have to respect their need to throw us out now. But thank you very much. Thank you to our panellists, Jonathan. And I'd just like to add my thanks particularly to the LSE Forum on Religion and the amazing public events team here. Um, if you haven't, this is your first LSE public event, you have to sign up to their Twitter feed, check out the website. They do really, really amazing and very full program of wonderfully free public events. Um, if you didn't get a copy of the report, you are able to download it free at the website or uh, send us an email and we'll put one in the post to you. Um, we have a few reports on the table outside, one about re uh, religious identity and one about religious liberty, um, and those are also downloadable on the website. Please do follow us on Twitter, um, sign up to our mailing list for which there's a sign-up sheet outside if you don't want to do it via the website. Um, and thank you very, very much for coming. We hope to stay in touch. Good night.